0: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at coreanesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com.
1: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to talk about monitoring. This is a conversation we wanted to do for a while now. There's a plethora of Things that we can use, and we're not going to have the time to go through each one, so we're going to highlight some of the main ones today. Hopefully, we can go through some of these main ones and give a good summary about why we should use it, how we should use it, etc. We're not going to go in depth on how to place the more invasive ones when we talk about Artline, CVC, SWAN, etc. We're going to bypass, for time's sake, how to actually start those monitoring systems we want to focus more on what the numbers mean what we should be looking for and why we're going to be using those so Tanner let's just start off here with pulse oximetry and why we should use this one
0: so pulse oximetry you all are familiar with this we've all worked in the ICUs and so this is something that every one of our patients typically has but it's important that we understand at a little deeper level what exactly is going on and what this tells us about our patient. so You should know, first of all, this is based on the Beer-Lambert Law. So that's the concept of how this works. And basically, it's using two different types of light. You have your near-infrared light, and then you have your red light. So your near-infrared light is going to be at a wavelength of 940 nanometers. Your red light is at 660 nanometers. Why this is important is because different things will absorb this light at different wavelengths. So what I mean by that is when you have oxygen in your blood, our oxygen... Attached to your hemoglobin, it's going to absorb more of the near infrared light at the nine forty wavelength. The reason we need to keep this in mind is because we're going to be taking care of patients that may have alterations in their blood content, things that can skew this data. And so, for pulse ox, two of the things that are really going to affect this is methemoglobin, and then also carboxyhemoglobin.
1: Right. So, methemoglobin is important because all these different forms of hemoglobin, whether they have carbon monoxide attached to it, oxygen attached to it, if they lack oxygen, each of these are going to absorb these wavelengths at varying degrees. And that's how the pulse ox basically calculates what the percentage of hemoglobin is carrying oxygen. Because like Tanner said, the saturated hemoglobin of oxygen more so absorbs light at the 940 nanometers The problem here is meth hemoglobin throws a loop into all of this. It absorbs equally at the 660 and the 940 nanometers. So what's going to happen here is the pulse ox calculates normally the amount of light absorbance that happens at the 940 compared to the 660 and does a calculation to figure out how much of that hemoglobin is saturated with oxygen. Well, since meth hemoglobin absorbs equally at both of those values that the oxygenated and the deoxygenated hemoglobin absorbs at, it's going to be a ratio about one to one. And the computerized system calculates this out to be around 85% saturation on your SpO2. So we're going to get a reading of about 85% if the patient has lots of methemoglobin. Why this is important is because let's say it's a healthy individual that would otherwise be sat in upper 90s. Well, they're going to read around 85 and you're going to be wondering why they're low and it's going to be falsely low because of the methemoglobin. On the flip side, their patient could be desaturating and could be down in the 70s, but it's still going to read closer to 85. And so it's actually going to be overestimating their SpO2. So don't just think that it's going to be at 85 and it's lower than typical because you could also have the flip side where you could be desaturating and not know it. Carboxyhemoglobin also throws a loop into this is because it absorbs light at the same frequency as the oxygenated hemoglobin. So let's say you have about 90% of the hemoglobin is saturated with oxygen and you would normally have a 90% on your SpO2. Well, now you throw in carboxyhemoglobin into this picture it's gonna absorb at the same frequency. So the machine's gonna pick up and say, oh, maybe 99 or 100% of it looks like it has oxygen. So we're gonna say it's 100% SpO2 when really it's only 85 or 90. It's just adding that carboxyhemoglobin in and making it look higher. So just know if a patient comes in and you suspect they have carboxyhemoglobin, they may read really high on their SpO2, but they're not actually high in terms of PaO2. And that's the big difference we wanna get here is that pulse ox will only give you an estimate as to the percentage of hemoglobin with oxygen. It does not tell you your PaO2. So let's paint a picture here. You have a very anemic patient, so there's very few amounts of hemoglobin floating around in the blood. It's more likely then that that hemoglobin, because there's so few of them, are going to be very saturated with oxygen. And so you may have a very high reading, upper 90s or 100%, but your PaO2 may be severely low just because there's not enough carrying capacity. So just know that if you don't have a high enough amount of hemoglobin, you're still going to have a high reading, but that does not necessarily mean your patient is fully saturated from a PaO2 standpoint. They could be hypoxic.
0: Nice. So the next thing we want to talk about is the blood pressure cuff. And if we thought we were familiar with pulse oximetry, I'm sure you're familiar with a blood pressure cuff. But this is fair game for some questions, and so this is important that we understand just a little bit of the mechanics behind what we're doing with the blood pressure cuff. Typically, these are all going to be automated. If you're having trouble with a blood pressure reading, you may choose to do a manual blood pressure. But with the automated blood pressure cuff, you're going to have the cuff inflate past the point of stopping arterial blood flow. And so say the person's blood pressure is is really I don't know, 120, it's going to go up to 140, 150 and completely stop the arterial blood flow. And then we'll start to come down. The systolic number is going to be where you start to have pulsation and you start to have blood flow again in the artery. At this point, there's going to be oscillations in the blood flow and that blood is trying to get past that still inflated blood pressure cuff. So at this point, when the oscillations are at the highest, that's what your map is going to be When these oscillations stop, that's your diastolic pressure. So that's how you get your three numbers, your systolic, your diastolic, and your MAP. For measurement, you want to make sure that the bladder is 40% of the circumference of the extremity. This is something that I feel like we've heard all the way from nursing school on. But really, it makes a big difference that you need to have the right size blood pressure cuff for the arm. Otherwise, you'll have false readings. So if your blood pressure cuff is too large then you're gonna have a falsely low blood pressure reading. If your cuff is too small for the patient, you're gonna have a falsely elevated pressure. And this makes sense because what the blood pressure cuff is measuring is how much pressure it takes, again, to stop the arterial blood flow. Well, if you have a smaller cuff, you have a smaller bladder that is inflating, you'll need more pressure in that smaller area to stop the blood flow. And so it's gonna be falsely high, Whereas if you have a really large cuff, a really large bladder, it needs less overall pressure to occlude that same blood flow. And so that's why it could be falsely low. So again, it's just important that if your pressure doesn't make sense with what your patient picture is looking like, again, go back to your basics, make sure that your cuff is 40% at the circumference of the arm. And so just take that blood pressure cuff, turn it, make sure it's a little less than half of the distance around the arm. And then when you actually attach it, you want to make sure that it's snug. It's not just loose on their arm. You want it to be roughly about 80% of the circumference of their arm when you're actually attaching it. And so, again, you don't want it super tight, but you want to make sure that it's nice and snug on their arm.
1: So, it's important after we measure the correct size cuff that we're looking at where we're placing it. Because where we place it comparatively to the vertical parts of the body are going to affect how our reading is. The most important thing that we're concerned with is both the pressure at the heart and then also the pressure at the brain. So if you have a patient that's supine, gravity's not really going to play a role here because the heart and the brain are at the same height. Where it starts to become a math equation is when you're you're putting the patient in Trendelenburg, reverse Trendelenburg, sitting position, etc. And if you're affecting the vertical change between the heart and the level of the brain, you have to calculate what the adjusted blood pressure is going to be. So what we mean by that is every inch in elevation you go, your map is going to change roughly two millimeters of mercury. So let's say I'm taking my blood pressure on my arm and it's right at the level of my heart and I get a map of 75. Well, I'm in that beach chair position, so my head is severely higher than where I'm taking this cuff at let's say it's 10 inches higher, that's going to be 20 points lower on my map. So instead of a 75, it's really a 55. That's a big difference when we're talking about preventing stroke and hypotension in this patient population. So you have to keep that in mind that where we're taking this blood pressure cuff and where we're trying to protect, such as the brain, is taken into consideration. It's also important to note that the more peripheral you take the blood pressure on the body, so let's say you have the patient in a supine position and I put the cuff on the distal portion of my calf. The farther away in that periphery I am, the higher my systolic and the lower my diastolic is. So that pulse pressure is going to become wider the further in the extremities you get. I'm not talking necessarily here in elevation. This is more just if you're supine. The more peripheral you are, the bigger that gets. We're going to bypass EKG for this topic, so we're going to focus on a whole separate talk on EKG. So now we're going to move into the realm
0: of BIS. Right, And BIS monitoring, I feel like it just depends on where you practice, the type of culture there is around BIS monitoring. Some people really, really like it. Some people really, really don't like it. And so this might be something you use on every one of your patients, depending on where you practice. Maybe it's something that you hardly ever use at all. It's important that you understand what it's doing, how it's measuring and how we can use it in our practice. Basically, this uses EEG to give us a value of the patient's sedation level. And so if you're doing general anesthesia, typically you want them to be within that 40 to 60 range. 60 to 80 is kind of a light Sedation. Usually, when I had patients in the ICU and we had BIS monitoring on them, we kept them more in that 60 to 80 range. Within that 60 to 80, you can still have some recall. Definitely above 80, you can have recall. And so, again, for general anesthetic, we'd like to keep them in that 40 to 60 range. Some things that you need to understand, and this might be part of the reason that some people don't like BIS monitors is that there are things that can alter your reading. And so if you're just going off of this BIS monitor, sometimes you can become maybe a little too dependent on it. And if the number says, you know, 35, and you're just sure that your patient is really, really deep, and yet there's other things that you should be picking up on that's saying that this patient is emerging, then sometimes the BIS can maybe lead you astray there where you're relying solely on it. So again, just keep in mind, it's just a tool to be used in conjunction with everything else that you're using to monitor this patient. Some things that can increase your BIS is ketamine. You know, like Ketamine increases your brain activity. If you give your patient ketamine, you can have a falsely increased BIS. If the surgeon is using a BOVI, that can also sometimes increase your reading or possibly give you an errant reading Another thing I've seen is when you're using your bear hugger, sometimes that can actually cause problems with the BIS reading. You should also keep in mind that there is a delay in your BIS monitor. So what you're seeing up on the monitor is not a real-time evaluation of their sedation status. It's lags behind as much as about 30 seconds. And so often by the time you see that BIS number go up, you're already way behind the curve as far as treating your patient.
1: Awesome. So that wraps us up with the basic monitors that we're going to do. Now we want to move into more of the waveform side of things. So we're going to go through capnography, arterial lines, CVP pressures, and pulmonary artery catheters. So to start with, let's talk about capnography. This one, in my opinion, is the biggest one of the main monitors that we have on pretty much every patient that we do. Capnography tells you so much about your patient. So first, let's talk about what it is and what it is is it picks up on the amount of expired carbon dioxide you can use this on a nasal cannula with a mask in your circle circuit really anything that we do we can hook this up and get a picture of what our patient is expiring this gives us not just a picture of how much carbon dioxide is leaving but it also tells us how our blood pressure is you need an adequate blood pressure and an adequate amount of cardiac output that's circulating that blood To bring that carbon dioxide to the lungs to then exchange into the lungs and then get breathed out. So, if you have all of a sudden a lower end title, that can tell you one, you're either not having gas exchange, two, your blood pressure may be dropping, three, there may be more dead space. It can tell you so much about your patient. And so, let's just talk here now really about the waveform. So, I encourage you if you have time to look at a waveform while we're talking about this, it'll make a lot more sense. Really, with all these waveforms that we go through, if you are able to look at a a picture just google a picture of the waveform it'll make a lot more sense as we walk through it. So with capnography there's four phases, phase 1 through 4. We start with phase 1, it's a it's a flat line and it starts at point A and goes to point B. So it's just a horizontal flat line. And this is the beginning of expiration. So when we start this waveform we have begun the process of expiring. The reason it's a flat line and we're not picking up on any expired CO2 is because we're completely expiring Dead space. There is anatomical dead space that is being breathed out first. So think about all the air that's through your circuit, through the trachea, down through your bronchioles before you get to the actual spot of gas exchange. That's obviously not going to contain carbon dioxide. So as that air is expired first, it's going to contain zero carbon dioxide and we're going to have a flat line. Phase two starts now at point B. So point B, it turns vertical and goes up to point C. So phase two is point B to point C. And at point C, it's going to turn and plateau. So this phase two part is where we're mixing now that dead space along with some of the gas that has been exchanged. And so we have that mixing here and we're starting to go up on our amount of CO2 that's being expired. When we get to point C, we switch into phase three and you have this kind of plateau where now we're not quite perfectly horizontal. We're still increasing, but it plateaus more and it goes across to point D. This phase three here is really important and we'll get into it in a second. The difference between that phase two and phase three, where we have that point C, and how sharp that angle is. This is the alpha angle. This will tell us a lot about how our patient is able to expire, whether we have an obstruction pattern or not. And we'll get into that here in a second. At the top of the vertical plateau is point D, and that's where we register our highest amount of carbon dioxide. That is the entitled carbon dioxide that we read. And at this point, it turns and goes straight down to point E. And this is phase four. We have this straight down phase. And where it turns here is called your beta angle. And again, we'll get into this in a second too. So as you drop down, this is now inspiration. We've finished expiring all that carbon dioxide. We breathe in. We shouldn't have any more carbon dioxide coming in. And it'll go straight back down to baseline and repeat the process back into phase one. So again, phase one is dead space being expired. There's no CO2. Phase two, we have a mixture of alveolar gas plus the dead space. So it starts to go up. Phase three is just alveolar dead space, and that's where it peaks at the highest at the end there at point D. And then phase four is inspiration where it drops straight back down.
0: So like Cole said, this is such an important monitor because it gives us so much information. And so now that he's gone through and discussed basically the mechanics of this waveform, now let's start to think about what does this actually mean for our patient? So Cole mentioned that first angle. So between phase two and phase three is your alpha angle. Your alpha angle, you want it to be around 110 degrees. I've yet to see somebody whip out their protractor and measure exactly what the degrees is on this alpha angle, but you'll get pretty good at understanding the angle and what is an abnormal angle. If it's an increased angle, so if it's increased, typically it looks like a hat. That's like the stereotypical thing that they tell you this waveform looks like. If it starts to look more like a shark fin, so the alpha angle is increased greater than 110 degrees degrees think about this this is the point where they are expiring and that is the measurement of the carbon dioxide leaving their lungs so if that angle is increased or typically it plateaus you have an obstructive disorder so this is where they are not able to easily breathe out that co2 and so that's why you have an increased angle instead of immediately blowing out all of your co2 you have a prolonged angle and prolonged CO2 coming out of the lungs. That's why you have that increased alpha angle.
1: So now if your beta angle is increased, this is again where you switch into that inspiration phase. If we have that beta angle increase, that means we're not instantly dropping our CO2. Theoretically, the second you switch to inspiration, you should have no more CO2 passing that sample line that you're testing this end title at, and it should just boom, fall back down to zero. If that line is more of a gradual decrease, that means we have a problem with either rebreathing, so we're not getting the co2 completely exhausted through our co2 absorbent and we're breathing it back in through our circuit and so that inspired gas contains some co2 and so we're not falling back to zero right away or it might be a bad valve so if you have a bad valve again same thing you're having that co2 get back around so this can be several things let's say we're using a nasal cannula And we have the patient covered under drapes, trying to keep their face warm, or they have just a a mask on, we're doing a MAC procedure, and we have all these blankets around them to try to keep them warm and protected. Well, they're going to be able to re-breathe in that CO2. So even though we don't have a closed circuit here, they're going to be able to re-breathe in their expired CO2. And again, this line is going to be more gradual. There is a difference to note here, though, between just that line being more gradual coming down and then also not returning completely to baseline. So if you notice, you'll have your waveform start in phase one, and then go up in phase two, plateau in phase three, and then drop in phase four, but that next phase one on the next waveform is not as low as the previous, that's going to suggest solely rebreathing and that you're rebreathing CO2 and you're never falling back to that baseline of zero. There's a lot of things that can cause these angles to be altered. So as Tanner said, that alpha angle could be any type of a structured pattern. That could be artificially from our tube being kinked. It could be from a COPD pattern, etc., and the beta angle could be anything from malfunction and equipment to the patient rebreathing, et cetera. So just keep that in mind that a lot of things can cause this. So we're going to spend a very brief time here going through the different altered patterns you can see besides the alpha and beta angle. So let's say you have your plateau, phase three, and it has a lot of squiggly lines in it. That's a sign of cardiac oscillations. Basically, the heart is beating in close proximity to the lungs. And so you see this squiggly waveform almost. And this is more so in pediatric patients because they have a smaller anatomy and their heart is closer to the lungs. Or I've seen this a lot in patients that have had cabbage procedure, any type of procedure that their sternum is separated, sewed back together, and it just kind of shifted the positioning. I've seen it a lot in those patients as well. If you have an isolated dip in that plateau phase or really at any point during your waveform, this is a sign that your patient is starting to rebreathe. So this may be the sign of they're about ready to start coughing. They're trying to breathe over the vent. They may need more paralytic. You may need to switch them to spontaneous ventilation, depending on where you're at in the procedure, but this is really a sign that they're starting to rebreathe on their own. Lastly, if your beta angle, instead of dropping down, you almost have an increase where it has a little bit of a peak at the end of the plateau and then drops down. This is a telltale sign that you have a sample line leak. Why this is, is your CO2 is going to mix with room air and it keeps that end tidal plateau lower than normal. So your phase two doesn't go up as high and then you plateau on phase three at a lower point than normal. And then when you start to inspire, you have positive pressure and it forces the rest of that CO2 that was kind of sitting there through the sample line and causes that quick jump, and gives you your final end title, and then it drops down. So that's a really telltale sign of a sample line leak. And just switch out that line and see if that corrects it.
0: Again, a really good monitor to tell us a lot of what's going on with the patient. You can pick up on increases in your CO2. Maybe you have a hypermetabolic state or you have sepsis, MH, you have more pain, a tourniquet has been deflated, all these different things you can start to see. On your end tidal CO2. And just keep in mind that the end tidal CO2 is just that your end tidal CO2. And so if we remember pressure gradients and how things go from in the bloodstream to in the lungs or vice versa. Remember that there's pressure gradients needed there. And so you need to have a higher pressure in the blood for the CO2 to cross back into the lungs and then be expired. So typically, whatever we see on your reading in the end tidal, your blood level of your CO2 is going to be about five higher than that. So if your end title is 35, for example, you can pretty well estimate that the CO2 on your blood gas is going to be around 40. And again, that's just because of how the pressure gradients work out and the CO2 being transferred from the blood to the lungs and then to our monitor.
1: Awesome. So next you want to go into arterial waveforms. So why would we want to use an invasive arterial line as opposed to our typical blood pressure cuff? Well, this gives us more of a video picture of our blood pressure as opposed to a snapshot picture that we would get from a cuff. The thing I like about it is it's a continual waveform. You can see changes instantly, so it's very nice to use in hemodynamically unstable patients, people that you might have fluid shifts in, a long case, might have a lot of blood loss. It'll tell you that instant change. And additionally, it's also really nice in long cases where you need multiple arterial blood samples for your gases to see how you're oxygenating, what your pH values are, if you need to get blood samples, et cetera. How this works is we get into an arterial space. Usually it's in the radial, sometimes femoral, but mainly the radial. And it'll give us this waveform where we'll have a peak. And then as we have a descend, we have another little peak. And the top of this waveform is going to be the systolic blood pressure. And the bottom is your diastolic and that little bump in the descending portion of the waveform is the dicrotic notch. And this is basically due to the aortic valve closing and shoves a little bit of blood forward and creates a little bit of pressure. So if you can imagine, you have your systolic contraction of your ventricles, you have that pressure shoot out, your waveform goes up, and then as your waveform starts to drop back down the end of the systolic period closes with the closure of the aortic valve and it pushes that blood forward a little bit more and you have that little bump there. And then you descend all the way down to your diastolic value. It's basically all there is to it. For your calculus lovers out there, there's another thing you can do. You can calculate the stroke volume by determining the area under the curve of this. I haven't found area under curve since, I think, senior year of high school when I was taking calculus, but Theoretically, if you want to know your stroke volume and you have an arterial line, you can calculate the area under the curve. Next, we want to talk about where you position this art line. So it's very important here. I know in the ICU, they always talked about keeping it at your plebostatic access around the level of the heart. That's a great ICU nurse, but we want to know what it is at the external auditory meatus because we're going to be putting these patients in such difficult positions And we want to know, again, just like we were talking about earlier, blood pressure, what is the blood pressure at the level of the brain? If your transducer is higher than where you're trying to measure, it's going to give you a falsely low blood pressure. So I remember one time I was in the ICU and I had my transducer on a separate pole than my pump with all my IV medications and transport came to take my patient to MRI And they went in, started setting things up. And I looked at the monitor out by the nurse's station. And all of a sudden, my patient's pressure read 40 over 22. And I freaked out and rushed in the room. And my patient was just totally fine hanging out. The problem was the transport staff took off my transducer from the one pole and just set it hanging on top of the IV pole with all my pumps. And so the transducer was so much higher that it made it look like they had such a low blood pressure. And vice versa is true. If you have that transducer very low, it'll make the blood pressure look higher. All right, next, let's talk about
0: CVP. And this might be a little bit easier if you pull out a picture of this as we talk through. That way, you can kind of keep track of what we're talking about. If you're anything like me, I typically just saw a bunch of squiggly lines when I was an ICU nurse and just figured, eh, I'm just looking at the number anyway. I didn't really care much about the waveform. But it's important now that you have a little bit better of an understanding of the waveform and what that signifies as far as the actual physiology and how that correlates with the waveforms. So, your CVP is going to measure the pressure in the right atrium. We use this mostly because it gives us a picture of the volume status of the patient. The waves signify pressure. So, the highest point is going to be where you have the highest pressure. Keep in mind that this is measuring in the right atrium. So, what's happening in the right atrium That is causing increased pressure this is where you have blood filling that right atrium and so your first point that peak point a that's going to be where the atrium is filling with blood has an open tricuspid valve so blood is filling into really the entire right side of the heart as it's passively going into the right ventricle as well but as it fills the pressure is going to rise at point A when the atrium contracts. So that's when you're gonna have your highest pressure in that right atrium. So you have an upslope as it's filling, you have contraction, that's your highest point, point A. As it goes down, you're moving your volume from the right atrium into the ventricle. When the ventricle has a higher pressure than the atrium, that tricuspid valve is going to close. And so that closure of the tricuspid valve causes a little bump in the pressure of the right atrium. And that's why you have a little bump basically on the overall A wave, if that makes sense. And that's just because that's that tricuspid valve closing. And so you have a little bump in pressure there as it's overall descending in pressure as that blood moves into the right ventricle. When the right ventricle pumps out the blood, the atrium is able to relax. This is where you have that x slope where your pressure is decreasing. Atrium is going to start to passively fill and so as that atrium is passively filling you're going to have an increased pressure and that's where the pressure in the right atrium is increasing but the tricuspid valve is still closed. When that tricuspid valve opens because the pressure in the right atrium is greater than the right ventricle that's where you start to see your descending Y point in your CVP because that blood flow is going to passively fill into both the right atrium and right ventricle. Awesome.
1: So, again, that's very confusing if you're not looking at a picture. So, I highly recommend you look at a picture through that. Unless you're driving, don't look at a picture while you're driving. Otherwise, let's talk about where you level this at. So, this is the one that you're going to level out your plebostatic axis. And this is the same as an art line in terms of if the transducer is higher or lower, it's going to give you that false. Lower or false high reading. Let's talk about though, what's going to alter your CVP measurement. So we're really analyzing here, the amount of pressure is going to be higher if the volume is higher. So if we have a higher venous return back into the right atrium due to a heavier fluid status. We're going to expect to have a higher number. And if we have a dehydration picture, we're going to expect that number to be lower. This also will be affected if the heart is having difficulty moving blood through the right side of the heart. And if there's a backup of blood, the CVP measurement is also going to be higher. So it's really two things, the volume status and then the ability of that right side of the heart to push that blood through. So let's talk about what can make the different waves bigger. So the A wave at the beginning there, when that atrium is going to contract, what would make that pressure higher? What's going to make it higher is if there's a decrease in compliance during the diastolic phase. So when that is filling up fully, if there's a decrease in compliance, then the atrium's not going to be able to enlarge itself as well and its pressure will become higher. Then if it starts to contract and it's going against stenosis in the tricuspid valve, meaning there's narrowing of that valve and we're not able to pass the blood through as quickly, you're going to have an increased pressure then, which is going to increase that A wave. Basically, anything that causes more force or pressure of that atrium to squeeze out that blood is going to cause the A wave to be higher. Now, the V wave, remember, again, is towards the end here, and... This is going to be more so due to tricuspid regurgitation when volume from the ventricle is getting pushed back into the atrium itself. So, lastly, what is the normal value here? Really, we were looking for a 10 millimeters mercury or under. 10 is kind of that higher point that we want.
0: To wrap up today, we're going to talk about the pulmonary artery catheter and some of the different waveforms and pressures that go along with this. This is going to have different. Pressures depending on where it is in the heart. And often, this is something that you'll do to get a wedge pressure and see these different pressures because that's really what you're looking at. The wedge pressure is going to estimate the left side of the heart. And so, it's a really important indicator of your cardiac output and your heart function. And so, that's a reason that we'll use this pulmonary artery catheter. And then you can also do the wedge pressure there to look at the left side of the heart. As far as the pressures go, I remember. When I first started out, the quick way I remember this was just quarter over dime. So typically, you want to see around 25 over 10 for your pulmonary artery pressures. Again, your pressures will change as they move that catheter through the heart. This all, to me, gets a lot more simple when you start to understand the different pressures in the heart. Your right atrium is going to be a pressure of about 1 to 10. And remember that blood is going to be moving because of different pressure gradients. So that pressure in the right atrium is going to be higher than the diastolic pressure in the right ventricle. Your right ventricle is typically going to be about 15 to 30 systolically over zero to eight on the diastolic. So your diastolic is going to be less than the right atrial pressure as you have blood flow move into the right ventricle. The right ventricle pressure is going to be lower than the pulmonary artery pressure and this is only overcome because you have the pump of the right ventricle. So the systolic on the pulmonary artery pressure, again, like I said, typically you think quarter of a dime. Your range is 15 to 30, over five to 15. So that diastolic is gonna be a little bit higher than the right ventricle diastolic pressure. This is overcome by that pump, so you have the blood ejected into the pulmonary artery. Your waveform here is gonna have a little bit of a diacratic notch. And so, when you're in the right atrium, that's just going to be your CVP waveform. You know what that looks like. As it moves down into the right ventricle, your waveform is going to change. You're going to have an increased peak and a decreased diastolic pressure. So, you'll have basically a cone shaped as it goes to the right ventricle. The pulmonary artery is going to look very similar to your arterial line where you have your diacrotic notch. As you move through that and you wedge the patient, this is going to be lower. It's basically the diastolic of your pulmonary artery pressure. So if you aren't able to wedge your patient, you can always estimate your wedge pressure on the diastolic of your pulmonary artery pressure. At this point, it looks similar to a CVP waveform. And again, your wedge pressure should be around 5 to 15. Your wedge pressure is going to estimate your end diastolic of your left ventricle. This could be falsely elevated if you have increased PEEP. Again, your end diastolic of your left ventricle. So, if you have increased PP of increased pressure, and then you could have a falsely elevated wedge pressure.
1: And something that's nice to use that wedge pressure for, again, that wedge pressure is basically taking a look because everything is open in terms of valves through the rest of the pulmonary circuit into the left atrium and down because the diastole you have that opening of the mitral valve down into that left ventricle and so really we're able to almost like shine if you can picture shining a light looking ahead all the way down into that left ventricle and looking at the pressure there and so that wedge pressure is very good at telling us if we're going to have an increased pressure due to the left side of the heart not being able to pump that volume through and there's a backup so let's say all these numbers are backed up. Let's say our pulmonary artery pressure is backed up, even into the right ventricle, and our wedge pressure is high as well. We can conclude then that's most likely due to the left side of the heart. Whereas let's say that wedge pressure is normal, the value is normal, but our pulmonary artery and our right ventricle pressures are higher. Then you can start to think okay, this is more of a lung problem and not a left side of the heart problem. And we have this pulmonary edema and this backup into the right side of the heart due to a lung problem and not the left side. So that's where these numbers really start to to help us out here. We can look at not just one of these values, but really compare what is our CVP to our right ventricle, to our PA, to our wedge pressure. So it's important that you know what normal is for all of these to then differentiate what can be going on to cause these different values to be increased. All right, so sorry that was a little bit longer talk this time, but we felt like it was important to spend good time going through each one of those Hopefully this gives you a better idea of why we should use monitoring when and how we can use them to provide better care for our patients.